podcasters assemble this is chortle power from the power playthroughs podcast hi this is arjuna gonzalez from peace island this is bill from the rpg golden years podcast i'm mc from the best animated shows ever so far hi this is justin from the trek off podcast hello i am the rubble gonzalez 9001 my name's tyler and i host the podcast too young for this hit. Hi, my name is Jason Carpenter, and I'm the host of Dead Rabbit Radio. This is Matt Wood and Brian Keown from Star Wars Comics Daily. Hi, it's Matt and Buffalo from Upper Pylon to a Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast. This is Kate from the Blob of the Hut podcast, and I'm here to talk about Attack of the Clones. Star Wars Episode 2, Attack of the Clones. There is unrest in the Galactic Senate. Several thousand solar systems have declared their intentions to leave the Republic. This separatist movement, under the leadership of the mysterious Count Dooku, has made it difficult for the limited number of Jedi Knights to maintain peace and order in the galaxy. Senator Amidala, the former Queen of Naboo, is returning to the Galactic Senate to vote on the critical issue of creating an Army of the Republic to assist the Overwhelmed Jedi. Oh dear. Oh boy. This one might be a bit tough to remain positive about. Uh, for considered the worst. Uh, you know, we saw this on Twitter this week, a bunch of people ranking their Star Wars movies, and I think it's the board. It's kind of refreshing, because I feel like there was a little resentment uh, our denial for the past couple of past decade or so that Phantom Menace was worse than Attack of the Clones, and I've never believed that. I always believed that Attack of the Clones was worse than Phantom Menace. I know for a lot of people, Attack of the Clones isn't their favorite, and that's including myself. Recently, I ranked it at the very bottom of the list of ranking all my Star Wars thing that was going around Twitter. But having said that. I will say that even my least favorite Star Wars movie is still tons better than, you know, just any average movie, and I still love it. And while you can say it's my least favorite Star Wars movie, it's many people's least favorite Star Wars movie. It's still Star Wars. And I think that's, we gotta remember that. So my experience first watching Attack of the Clones was opening night, 2002, I believe it was a midnight showing in Phoenix. It was a lot of fun. There still was a lot of fanfare surrounding it, you know, with the new Star Wars movie. There were people in costumes, um, lots of energy, but probably still not quite the excitement levels that opening night The Phantom Menace had. Probably back then it was before reserve seating, so I'm sure I didn't see it opening night, but I'm sure I saw it the opening weekend. At that point, it was like, yeah, Phantom Menace wasn't that great. I don't know how excited I am about Attack of the Clones. I was about 15, I think, when this first came out and I saw it in theaters. I don't really remember much about it. Um, and I wasn't too pleased with it, I don't think, at the time. I was probably a little bit sarcastic, but who isn't when they're a teenager? Yeah, I don't have I don't have the fond memories of going to see Attack of the Clones like I do for like Revenge of the Sith or Phantom Menace. You know, I think everybody, yeah. everybody remembers their Phantom Menace. Now, I have a very similar experience with because I had with the Phantom Menace. I went to see it at the cinema. Yes, I wasn't quite yet done with Jar Jar. I went back for some more. <laughs> so I was not a huge fan of the Phantom Menace when it came out. I was very, very disappointed. Looking back on it, I enjoy it. But at the time, I was very disappointed. So when Attack of the Clones came out, couldn't care less could not care less. Now, I was a lifelong Star Wars fan. I was in my mid-20s, but I'm 43 now. I was in my mid-20s back then. I played the role-playing game, read the books, saw the movies, of course. Huge Star Wars fan. And Phantom Menace was like a kick in the gut. I was like, I'm done. And my little brother, I remember one day he called me up and he goes, hey, man, have you seen... Attack of the Clones had been out for maybe three weeks at the theater. My little brother calls me up. He goes, have you seen Attack of the Clones yet? And I was like, nope. Neither, you can't fool me twice can't do it Lucas and my little brother goes dude it's actually quite good and I was like really and he's like yeah 
Yeah, you, and you need to go see it at the theater. Don't wait to watch it on video. And he was right. Not only was Attack of the Clones good, I think it's one of the best of the series. I actually did not catch episode two when it premiered in theaters. I saw it on TBS in like 2004 or five. I don't remember seeing actually large parts of this movie. Like maybe I just didn't tune in at the right time or they edited it for length. But right up until Obi-Wan lands on Kamino, like I don't remember seeing everything before then in the movie. And unlike episode one, where when I saw it 20 years ago, it was awesome, but now in some places it's just plain cringeworthy. I liked episode two a lot more than what I remembered seeing back in 2000 and X. Maybe it was just where I was in my life. I, I wasn't too interested in a movie with an angsty teenage protagonist. I was more interested in my own angsty teenage stuff, minus the mass murder. Attack of the Clones is one of those movies that's in, it's surprisingly tight. It's a very, very concise narrative. And everything starts off with the beginning. When Amidala's ship is landing and it explodes, it sets up the whole plot of the movie. Who is trying to kill Amidala? And every revelation we get in that movie starts at that moment. They would have never been to Genosis in the first place if Obi-Wan wasn't trying to find out who is trying to kill Amidala. That is the constant thread. I really kind of like the conversation between Anakin and Obi-Wan at the uh, the beginning of episode two, where they're, they're taking the elevator up to go meet Padme again for the first time in years. Uh, and they're just kind of snarking back and forth about like, you know, oh, remember I had to save you from that pit. No, I seem to remember that it was I who saved you, Master. And there's just like a nice uh, camaraderie between the two of them. Uh, that's, I think, one of the strong points of this movie is that there's this nice uh, kind of brotherly slash father-son relationship between them. I've always seen it as more brotherly, but I know that at one point Anakin says he's like a father to him. Um, but yeah, I, I like that establishment right away here. I think Ewan McGregor carries it stronger than uh, than Hayden Christensen does, but I like it regardless. Ewan McGregor remains a strong positive here. While I thought the casting of him in The Phantom Menace was inspired, I think his character took a bit of a backseat to the Qui-Gon Jinns of the movie there. Here, he now starts to stand out quite a bit more and really comes into his own. I think he's more in control of his character. I think he's having a bit more fun with the part. And I think he's really doing the heavy lifting of this movie acting-wise. I think he's the standout best actor in the movie. My favorite light side moment is actually the chase on Coruscant, where you see the Jedi's chasing down this assassin. It's like their bodyguards and cops at the same time. It's really weird, but just seeing like the Jedi as like cops the opening of the movie, the biggest uh, strong suit is the whole chase scene where they're trying to find the assassin who's been uh, trying to attack Padme. So someone really wants Portman dead, and it's, it's a shame, because no one wants Portman dead, really. Uh, the whole chase scene where they're trying to find the assassin starts with Anakin and Obi-Wan chatting outside of Padme's bedroom while these caterpillar things, centipede, not caterpillar, centipede things are crawling onto Padme's bed. But yes, they drill, a, they send off a little mech which drills a hole in the glass and lets these two little bugs go in. And R2-D2, naughty R2-D2, fails to detect these bugs. And then like at the last possible moment, both Anakin and Obi-Wan sense it and like bust into the room, lightsabers out, and Anakin jumps up and slashes the, the centipedes apart. He does what every good man does while Natalie Portman's sleeping on the bed. He jumps in and waves his wand in her face, uh, uh, kill, you know, to kill, you know, his lightsaber, to kill the bugs, you know, not a sexual thing. <laughs> I don't think. And then dives out a window and it starts this awesome chase scene through Coruscant. And this is, I think, legitimately good. I like this chase scene a lot. It's got some fun character stuff. You you get uh, a sense of Anakin's recklessness and kind of his exhilaration at, at, at adventure. Like that is the thing that he is here for is is uh the excitement of this chasing but you also get a sense for how dangerous that is and some of obi-wan's hesitations about that uh you get to see a ton of coruscant which is just super cool the two guys are just absolutely flying around in these uh <laughs> 
and it's futuristic, you know, because Coruscant is a huge planet. It's got a city surrounds the entire planet. There's all these cars just flying through the sky on some sort of weird system that they all seem to understand. There's no signs to indicate where people should be flying around. And obviously, as Jedi, they can just fly wherever the hell they want, and that's generally what Anakin does a lot. Um, and yeah, they're going all over the place, and then they catch each other, and then eventually, they think, well, Obi-Wan thinks he's lost track of the target, and he's telling Anakin off for losing the target and going off course, and Anakin just says, okay, Master, I understand. I won't do it again. Hold on, hold on there one second. And he jumps out <laughs> and just free falls until he falls on top of the uh, the car they've been chasing. <laughs> it's, it's really funny, and I do, I do like that aspect to <laughs> Star Wars. I love the fact they mix the action and humour very well together. So once the chase is over and they've managed to chase this... Uh, this uh, hunter of bounties down to a, uh, a pub somewhere. <laughs> um, there's just a great, great moment where as Ewan McGregor's walking in and, you know, he's telling, he's telling Anakin off. He tells Anakin off a lot in his, <laughs> in this film. And he says to him, do you know what, Anakin, why can't I shake this feeling that one day you're going to be the death of me? <laughs> and it's just like, nice. <laughs> that is a brilliant setup, which will come along in a couple of films time. <laughs> Spoiler. Now, I didn't actually care all that much for the speeder chase action, per se, that happens throughout the city. I loved looking past those characters and the action happening in the foreground. Looking past all that to all the depth and character of the world that they're zipping through. Here, I love that we explored the variety of the geography or the architecture, really, of this planet. It starts out in that swanky apartments area that Padme lives in. Then you move to more rundown, kind of lived in, less sterile, clean environments. Eventually, you end up going into like the purely uh, industrial sections. And then finally, you head down into the sort of ground level of the planet where I'm sure a trillion people live there, the common people. Down here, I, I rather liked that bar scene. And yes, it's home to the notoriously stupid death stick part. Probably my favorite quote is uh, mixed with one of my favorite minor characters. Uh, it's the death stick guy. You want to buy some death sticks? Nobi-Wan says, you don't want to sell me death sticks. I don't want to sell you death sticks. You want to go home and rethink your life. I want to go home and rethink my life. Obi-Wan really takes liberties with his Jedi powers. <laughs> Who the f*** are you, Obi-Wan? to go and tell him to, to go rethink his life. If he wants to sell death sticks in a pub on a Thursday evening, that's up to him. That's not your decision. You don't want the death sticks, just say no, okay? Other people may want those death sticks. So stick your nose out, you and McGregor. It's not your business. Um, You feel the sense of the course correction from episode one. Episode one was said it was dry, it was humorless. What happened to the humor? And if you look at the very first video that was released when episode two came out, it started with that joke, you know, of, uh, um, you want to buy some death sticks? You don't want to sell, I don't want to sell you death sticks. You want to go home and rethink it? I want to go home and, they're immediately trying to say, hey, this movie's quippy. This movie, they were trying to say that this movie's going to have more banter and more fun. But there's a very specific aspect of this that I liked quite a lot. It reminds me of Mega City One from the comics of Judge Dredd. It's a rather zany bar in some giant city, but it gives the place this wacky character beyond what we saw before. So that when you look at those mega buildings, but then you start to drill down into them and start looking, you can see that there's this potential for all these incredibly interesting stories at every single level. And like I said in The Phantom Menace, this just really justifies and further wants me to have that story in Coruscant. Remove the Jedi. Give me what the Coruscant police, have them struggling against some small-time, middle-time villain that's trying to move up just one rung in the crime organization. Don't make it all the way up to Jabba the Hutt. Make him control one city block or something like that. Maybe I just hinted at it right there. Give me the Judge Dredd movie in Coruscant. I love it. That part is great. The plot at the beginning of this film is fairly incoherent. 
<laughs> because there was really no point in the senator going to Coruscant in the first place. It's literally just so that she can have a couple of assassination attempts and then we can set up her and her good her good buddy Anakin Skywalker to go off together to have a romantic getaway in Naboo because you know we need these two to get romantic together so we can save the universe later on. We can't talk about this movie without talking about the relationship between Anakin and Padme and I you know it's it's there uh it's not the strongest plot of the movie because I don't really see what Padme sees in Anakin. Um, I do like the early scene of their relationship where uh, Anakin's talking about how great he is and he's like, you know, in many ways I'm ahead of Master Kenobi. He's holding me back. It's not fair. And and Padme's just kind of like, uh-huh. Okay, sure. Uh, but I like that at the end of that scene, um, she kind of uh, asserts herself really nicely in a way that I like because he's being like creepy towards like kissing her hand or something and she's like please don't look at me that way and he's like why not my lady and she's like because it makes me uncomfortable and i'm like yeah go padme heck yeah and then later she falls in love with him and whatever my favorite musical cue has got to be across the stars it's so sweeping and dramatic and filled with emotion very romeo and juliet it's just beautiful Despite some, how shall we say, wooden performances by the lead actor and actress, the music actually in the end does end up selling it, in my opinion. So for a, for a musical cue to be that good, it has got to be amazing. And obviously we know that John Williams, he's the man and he can deliver, so... So, this is the point, as I mentioned earlier, where... <laughs> they decide, you know, in order to protect Princess Amidala's life, they're going to send her away back to Naboo, where she can go to the rom most romantic place in the universe to spend time only with her bodyguard, a young Jedi, who is basically acting like a really horny teenager. <laughs> and, you know, they start, they, they stand by the lake and stare out lovingly at it. They have a little cheeky kiss, which she pulls out of, and then they start, you know, riding giant sheep things through fields and rolling over and rolling around in the grass and just general lots of frolicking and all that sort of stuff. Uh, this is supposed to really set up the, the strength of the love between the two, but to be honest with you, it's just two horny teenagers trying not to have sex with each other. <laughs> One of the reasons why this doesn't come across, I think, is because Natalie Portman's quite a good actor the other guys yeah <laughs> questionable uh most of the sort of weird loving looks he's giving her kind of a bit creepy and rapey <laughs> uh, yeah it's kind of like the legend of the older cartoon it's, it makes me feel uncomfortable <laughs> um but yeah portman seems to sort of just carry the whole scene really people like to hate on hayden christensen in the prequels but uh, most of the lines that he delivers that are like awful I don't think anyone could have done anything better. I think he's mostly pretty good throughout the movies. But how can you say this line in a believable manner? I'm in agony. The closer I get to you, the worse it gets. The thought of not being with you. I can't breathe. I'm haunted by the kiss that you should never have given me. My heart is beating, hoping that kiss will not become a scar. You are my very soul, tormenting me. What can I do? How can you say that in a way that sounds like people talk? That's not how people talk. It, you know, people don't talk like that. The funny thing is, uh, the first time I showed my wife this movie, that particular line, she's like, why don't you talk to me like that? And I was just like, because it's creepy. So this love element is devoid of anything to latch on or care about because you just can't believe it at all. These are two inhuman people talking to each other and you're being told that they're falling in love when you cannot see it whatsoever. Man oh man is this when the movie falls off. The Anakin storyline was absolutely brutal in practically every aspect. I know Hayden Christensen is a better actor than what we saw here from what came after. 
And I know Natalie Portman is a much better actress than what we saw here. She was a much better actress before the Star Wars movies. Look no further than Leon the Professional. And then look no further than after the movie when she won an Oscar. She's great all around this. But these actors are terrible in this role. They have zero chemistry together. That's in large part because they have the just horrendous dialogue between them. You can't believe for a moment that these two are falling in anything that you would call genuine love. And then we have that CGI pair. My God, that pair. I remember sitting in the theater watching that scene where he levitates that pair over to her and she skewers it with a fork and there's no weight to anything. And it is, she takes a bite of just air. Oh, I was flabbergasted <laughs> thinking like, how in the world did this make the movie? And then you have the sand scene. Need I say more there? I hate sand. For my favorite quote, I'm going to go with the iconic. I don't like sand. It's coarse and rough and irritating and it gets everywhere. Not here. Here, everything is soft and smooth. So I'm not picking that because I think it's a necessarily good line, but it's my favorite just because it's become so iconic and it's launched a thousand memes. <laughs> so everyone always talks about the whole I don't like sand quote, but you never hear people talk about what Anakin's doing while saying that when he gets to the part where he's like, everything here is soft and smooth. He's like rubbing Padme's shoulder in this really creepy manner and she doesn't seem receptive to it. And yeah, it's it's awful. It's it's worse than the, you know, not liking sand thing. One of the things that I always thought was the coolest thing about episode two. Like, if, I, if I'm thinking, okay, what are my favorite things about episode two? Um, it gives us Detective Obi-Wan. I genuinely liked the attempt here to make a mystery and make it a bit of a light, kind of maybe halfway there, film noir kind of a drama. I like the idea, and I think it's a solid premise to have Obi-Wan off on a mystery following a string of clues through all these different wildly diverse planets in Star Wars. But ultimately, I think it was pretty poorly to genuinely poorly executed. First, I think Ewan McGregor here is largely wasted on this. It's a real shame that he got stuck for the most part talking to rather boring CGI characters through so much in the mystery. It's funny because one of the elements people really don't like about it, or I should have said they don't like, but they always mocked, was one of my favorite scenes in the movie. I have a lot of favorite scenes in this movie. But Jax's diner, the 50s diner. Now, I get it. People are like, oh, 50s diner, what's that doing on Coruscant? Blah, blah, blah. I get it. The, the idea, the look may be a little off. But that is pure film noir storytelling. You have the private investigator, Obi-Wan, going to one of his contacts and being like, hey, do you recognize this? And the alien monster man with four arms is kind of looking. He's like, oh, yeah, I recognize this tip. I recognize this type of weapon. This comes giving him the backstory and all that stuff. Obi-Wan goes about his business. Very, very interesting moment for a Star Wars film, because this movie is a mystery. Who is trying to kill Amidala? is the point of the movie that's really pushing it forward. And I thought that was an interesting scene. Now, of course, you could have had him go to the Jedi library and do-do-do, type in a computer, and the little CGI thing comes up, and he goes, oh, that's from the 8th planet. Now, I think it's interesting he goes to the diner, and I think the reason why it's a 50s diner is because it's a film noir-style story point. But I really, really like that scene. I really like that scene, and it's nice to know that Obi-Wan has friends who aren't a bunch of weirdo monks. I think this movie just doesn't have the same charm, by any means, of The Phantom Menace. Say what you will about, about Jar Jar, at least you can latch onto that, do an impression, make fun of him, and he becomes a legendary character. Not for the best of reasons, obviously, 
but it becomes a legendary character. Compare him, for example, in this movie to that big giant thing in the 50s diner. Like, all right, he picks his pants up with his fourth arm. Exciting. Or the guy who runs the diner, Dex, that Obi-Wan Kenobi goes to to uh, find out about the dart that was used is great. I mean, cool plot stuff, like he explains about the, the cloners, the, oh, cloners, darn good ones, too. Uh, but I just like this character. I think Dex is a really fun character, this big slobby guy who, he just runs a diner. That's what he does. There's people in Star Wars who just run diners. And he's got a droid named Flo, who's a waitress, and she's great, too. I really like these two. I really like this scene. I think it's fun. I could watch probably, like, a whole trilogy just of Dex, his relationship with Obi-Wan was quite amusing and, you know, and he's just so visually strange looking and his personality was so perfect. This kind of weird stuff is the Star Wars stuff that I live for. I think this story well in line would have been much better served had we utilized Ewan McGregor a bit more, having him interact with something a little bit more of a tangible villain Maybe introduce to Christopher Lee a little bit earlier, somehow in here. Something where he isn't just meeting like the 50s diner thing. And then immediately to a green space area with like a CGI kid. And then straight into all CGI Camino. It's just, it wasn't like enough for him, I think, to bite his teeth into. My favorite light side moment is, well, there's that whole sequence of Obi-Wan Kenobi discovering Kamino and the existence of the clone army, and which honestly is a lot more interesting than the other plot thread going on at the same time, Fast Times at Naboo High. The visuals on Kamino are pretty cool. Uh, the whole planet is covered in like this, like, uh, ocean that's constantly having storms happen so like it's huge waves and rain and lightning and all this stuff and i think that's a really cool visual the 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 cloners themselves look really cool it's a very interesting character design with like super elongated necks and things those things are dull their character is that they are dull and flat of affect but really tall like what do you kind of latch onto as just like even to make fun of later on not much there what stands out to me the most is the meeting with the Prime Minister. He gets the whole Willy Wonka and the Stormtrooper factory tour of the place because you get the origins of the Stormtrooper army, you get the origins of Boba Fett, you get uh, all of this other stuff that was talked about in the original trilogy without a whole bunch of backstory and extra proper nouns to remember kind of weighing it down. <laughs> but yeah, we get these sort of like cool Matrix type scene where we see all these like test tube babies being grown and then we get to see all of them being trained. Um, they give a brief description, you know, just to make sure that we understand. <laughs> so the, it's kind of, it's cleverly done, but it also feels very cheaply done. But the whole scene is set because Ewan McGregor doesn't know what's going on. And so these people are giving him a tour and explaining to him what's going on, which in turn means they're explaining to us, the viewer, what's going on. So, yep, there's a bounty hunter called Django Fett, and they've taken some of his DNA and they've cloned him bucket loads of times. <laughs> and they have growth acceleration. And apparently Django's feet, which was a lot of money, and uh, he also wanted an unaltered clone without any growth uh, <laughs> enhancements to make him grow up quicker or to be an exceptional soldier. Basically, he just waited a mini-me. Boba Fett's origin story was a thing that never, ever needed to be explored. To, in order to like even integrate it into the larger Star Wars universe of the clone armies, it, it is a kind of an interesting idea. But logically speaking, yeah, it doesn't really make that much sense. And all this is exciting. Uh, the first time you watched this movie, back when it came out, it was exciting because it's like, oh my gosh, look at these guys. There's so many of them. And, and they're all cloned from Boba Fett's dad? What? Um, but then now it's exciting to watch because like the Clone Wars, the cartoon, makes the clones so fantastic. And so it's really cool to see their origins here. Some of the episodes of Clone Wars is some of the best Star Wars, period. I certainly think as a whole, uh, the Clone Wars is better than any of the prequels. They wrote the mystery in a needlessly confusing manner. Because to this day, I don't know still what or who sifo is or was. If they were a real Jedi, or how Dooku was involved in this. 
that part it's like it's not terribly important so why do they put it in there anyhow but i like the idea of it but they should have done it better anyhow it ends up being a mess they should have made it a little bit more of a clean cut story and more straightforward Dude, let's get down to brass tacks. One of the best scenes in the entire Star Wars series is the fight between Obi-Wan and Jango Fett. It's 100% one of the best scenes in the series. It's up there with the speeder bikes on Endor. It's up there with the Darth Maul battle. I believe. There's a lot of great action in this with Jango Fett using like his jetpack and using grappling hooks and all this stuff. And it's cool to see like uh, a normal dude be able to kind of keep up with a fight with a Jedi. Now, granted, he takes him by surprise and he uses a lot of tricks, but still, he kind of keeps up, which is cool. It makes me think about there's a line uh, earlier, maybe later, I don't remember what happens, where Mace Windu and Yoda are talking. Mace Windu and Yoda are talking, and there's, there's a line where he says, uh, we should tell the council that our ability to use the Force has been diminished. And I think it's Yoda says like, hey, nobody knows that except for the Sith Lord. There's no reason we need to make that public now. But that's a really interesting concept that like, as the Sith gain power, do the Jedi lose power? And if that's the case, does that explain why the Jedi in the original, or sorry, in the prequel trilogy are able to do so many more fantastical things compared to Luke and Obi-Wan in the original trilogy? Because they just don't have like, as much of the force available to them. I'm not sure exactly what's going on there, but I've always found that line really intriguing. We've seen Jedis cut through battle droids and we've seen Jedis fight each other, but we've never seen a Jedi basically fight an other human who's a quote unquote hero level. And what I mean by that is a named character who has their own special set of abilities. We've never seen that in Star Wars up until this point. Now, yes, you have the skiff battle on Jabba's palace and stuff like that, but this is a one-on-one -on -one battle between a young Jedi and Boba Fett's dad. The only bit I'm going to mention of the fight, because I'm sure other people will mention it, is just the bit where Obi-Wan, Ewan McGregor, does a big, like, kung fu flying kick. Because <laughs> Jango Fett's got this jetpack and he's flying around everywhere. He just la He's flying over towards him and Obi-Wan just jumps up in the air leg out, <laughs> kick to the chest, boom, they both go flying to the floor. Brilliant. The sound it makes when um, Obi-Wan kicks Django in the chest, it's just like this very satisfying, I love it. And not only do you get to see these two characters go at it, you get to see how many times did you have a Boba Fett action figure and you actually wanted to see that missile shoot out of his back. We get to see that. And we get to see a Jedi get owned by this dude and the jedis aren't these unstoppable people this bounty hunter with no special powers just years and years of experience holds his own against this jedi brilliant scene brilliant action scene i love it you have the rain it's very evocative fight scene it's well choreographed and i kind of like the light action beat in the rain fighting jango fett it kind of, if we stretch things here a little bit, it makes it a little bit of that kind of black and white noirish thing mixed with the action expectations of Star Wars. So I liked that part of it, the intention of this sequence. My favorite use of the force in this movie is something like really small and simple. Uh, so in the fight between Jango and Obi-Wan, uh, when Obi-Wan and Jango are both like falling off of like the structure or whatever and Jango's like stuck into the side of the wall with like his blade wrist blade things. He cuts the cord so that Obi-Wan falls. As Obi-Wan's falling, he like throws the cord and uses the force to like tie it around something and like swings across to a platform, kind of like Indiana Jones. This is dumb, but at the end of the fight between Obi-Wan and Jango Fett, there's a part where uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi ends up uh, on, like he's fallen down to a catwalk below his landing pad where his A-wing is and there's a door and he uses his force. He does the slide his hand to the side thing thing to use the force to open the door. And it just like, that's what we all did when we were kids, right? When you would walk up to like the grocery store and it had the automatic door, we would all use the force to open that door and Obi-Wan Kenobi uses the force to open the door. And I think that's great. 
The asteroid battle is such a small moment in the Star Wars franchise. It's maybe like, I don't know, four minutes, if that. And out of those four minutes, there's only about 30 seconds that I think is, is probably one of the, the coolest things that Star Wars has ever done. Those seismic charges, dude. Those seismic charges, I think there's only like two or three of them. But you're wa you just watched this awesome hand-to-hand -hand combat between Jango Fett and Obi-Wan, and Jango wins. And then they take off into space, and Obi-Wan is right on his trail. And at, as they're doing their ship battle, we see a weapon we've never seen before in Star Wars, and I'd argue never really seen in any sci-fi franchise. And it's not just that they're talking about the seismic charges. It's not just the fact that they're throwing bombs out of a spaceship. We've seen that before. But somebody, whether it was Lucas or someone on the special effects team or someone in the sound design team or whatever, came up with this. They drop the bomb and it explodes, which is cool, which is what bombs tend to do. But that delay of the sound effect mwah, makes it gold. And I don't know what it is about that scene, but that is that is my favorite scene in Star Wars series. It doesn't have all this emotional impact that we have between Vader and Luke. It doesn't have all these crazy acrobatics. But that choice, if it was just a bomb going out, and blowing stuff up, but that choice to delay that sound just, it makes that so alien, so futuristic, so sci-fi. And you're just watching these bombs. It's not an explosion. It's like a cut through asteroids. Asteroids becoming smaller asteroids, even smaller asteroids, and just that Watching that scene in the theater, I remember thinking, this is what Star Wars movies are. This is what they are. They're danger and swashbuckling. This, to me, this was like seeing a lightsaber for the first time. And they didn't overdo it. They didn't shoot off ten of them. They had just enough that it left you wanting more. But it was a piece of sci-fi technology that I remember watching this, and I had a huge smile on my face. I'm in the theater watching the scene, and I think, I want to see this scene again. I want to watch this movie just to see this scene again. Over on Tatooine, uh, Anakin's looking for his mother because he's had these premonitions that something terrible is happening to her. And he finds out that she was taken by the Sand People. And uh, yeah, this this is dark. And it's dark that he goes and kills them all. But I do like at the start of this that uh, as he starts his, starts his search for his mother, um, it plays the Duel of the Fates as he's searching around. Uh, there's a little like searching montage where he's talking to Jawas and stuff and it's playing the, the Duel of the Fates. Du, 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 du. I don't know why. Thematically, it feels like it should be important that it's playing the Duel of the Fates. And I just, it's just playing it. I'm not sure why. Probably my favorite dark side moment is mixed with my favorite music cue. When Anakin discovers his mother in the uh, Tuscan Raider village and he's holding her uh, at, uh, just after she's died, there's like really sharp violin. The music cue is, I think, calling to the Imperial March and you see just like Anakin's face filled with rage and then he goes out and he just slaughters all the um, Tuscan Raiders. That's a really dark side moment, and you can see the beginnings of Vader there. The way her head falls back, she goes, and her head goes back. It's it's really, like if that moment, could, if you could just cut that moment slightly differently, do a different take, do something, it would have saved it, and it really, 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 really upset me how bad that moment is. But his reaction is good. I enjoyed the music. Da, 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 da. You know, like, like do, 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 do. I, I love it. I love um, I dig Hayden when he's getting dark. Where Anakin and Padme are talking about how he's slaughtered the whole um, Tuscan Raider village after his mother died, and we get, like, the first clip of the Imperial March theme after he said that he killed all the women and children, because it's the first real glimpse of the transformation of Anakin Skywalker into Darth Vader that we all knew was going to happen, but before then, he was just a kid in a pod racer in episode one, and up until that point, he was just a rather irritating, angsty teenager. If you look at it from the abstract, 
if you go, okay, this is his step down the dark path. Okay, I get it. But when you watch it in the movie itself, it just becomes lost in the bad acting and the bad love story around it. And it's the storyline now that because of all that other stink, I'm wildly tuning out to this. Get me back to the rather dull part, uh, but not horrible Obi-Wan thing. These are the parts that if I pop this into my Blu-ray player, I'm skipping over all these chapters. At least it has the rather cool musical cue of him driving around in the speeder through this. And then there's just this really dramatic scene where he's riding on the speeder and it's sunset with the binary sunset and you know you just know something terrible has happened and to me that's probably one of the first definitive steps of Anakin's path to the dark side. My favorite vehicle is always the speeder bikes. Uh, Anakin's riding it on Tatooine when he's looking for his mother. Um, those things just look like if they hit anything, they're just going to explode. So I think it's really brave for anyone to get on one of those things or crazy. They, they do not look safe at all. So Palpatine's big push in this movie is that he is pushing for uh, uh, emergency powers that will let him uh, create an army of the Republic. And the way that he makes this happen, actually, is that they need a senator to bring up the uh, bring this up. They need a senator to suggest it so that the Senate will vote on it. And he is getting Padme out of the picture so that Jar Jar Binks will be the acting senator for Naboo. And then he tricks Jar Jar Binks into making it happen. And this is really interesting to me. And like, it, it's it's a good plot. I mean, it works because you've gotten the most like manipulatable creature in existence into a position of power so that you can manipulate him. But also like, that's your big plan. Your big plan is to use Jar Jar. It's just, you know, Palpatine's master manipulator. You think he could find somebody to use besides Jar Jar Binks, but I guess it works. So you can't hold it against him. My favorite droid moment would probably be the part where R2-D2 pushes C-3PO onto the conveyor belt. Like, uh, I know this happens in the later movies, but I love R2-D2's attitude throughout the whole film. Like, C-3PO is all uptight, but R2 is here to kick ass and reuse droid oil, and he's all out of droid oil. And I, I guess he's kind of like, I almost got shot off into space back in episode one. I'm out of blips to give. I love that. That factory floor action sequence is incredibly gratuitous. They even admit it. George Lucas knew that they needed to put some action in here to liven that part of the movie up. But it's just so like, ugh, this is not entertaining at all, unfortunately. That part was not of interest to me. The droid factory scene is interesting because... I loved it when I was a kid, but watching it now, it really felt a lot like the pod race to me, where it's this long extended scene with some cool action and fun and like turn up the sound system on a big screen, great. But there's not a lot of content to it. Like the chase scene at the beginning, I felt like we got a lot about Anakin and Obi-Wan's characters through that chase scene. Whereas this action scene in the droid factory, I mean, it's entertaining, but I don't feel like you get much character development. It's just kind of I mean, it's 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 like a theme park ride. I actually kind of like the crazy droid factory fight. Um, I know that it was thrown in last minute. It's one of the last things filmed. They're like, we need an action scene here. And let's just have this pointless action scene among the machines. But I got kids and that's their favorite scene in like a lot of Star Wars because it's just fun. It's just it's it's neat to watch it happen. Uh, the only great character moment in this for me. Uh, well, one C-3PO's head getting cut off and then him being on the body of a, of a battle droid is it's very dumb, but I love it. I still love it. I loved it as a kid. I still love it now. But two, uh, Anakin's lightsaber gets chopped in half, and he like jumps up and tries to turn his lightsaber on and then looks at it and realizes it's been chopped in half, and he goes, ah, oh, not again. Obi-Wan's going to kill me. And I like that that was not again. I like, because I, at the beginning, he almost lost his lightsaber, and Obi-Wan caught it for him during that chase scene. But now it actually got chopped in half. Has he had his lightsaber chopped in half multiple times? I do believe he has. My second favorite, or third, I forgot how many favorite scenes I've had in this movie. But 
the battle in the Colosseum. And I'm not talking about all of the Jedi fighting all the battle droids. We've seen that before. What I'm talking about are the bugs. People go, oh, the, the animals are, are dumb. They're, they're not dumb. They're, they're a reference to Clash the Titans and Jason the Argonauts and those great Roy, Roy, Roy Harehausen um, stop motion things. They're, they're, they're an homage to those. And as a fan of those old things, I really enjoyed them. You had Amidala and Anakin and Obi-Wan tied up in the accolade. Blah, 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 blah. The, the monsters coming in, the Genosians. The Genosian character design was amazing, by the way. I get they they did the battle droids and they did the CGI with them. And it almost seemed like a test. And now we have the Genosians that actually seem like a real thing. But when they bring in those alien monsters and they're going to eat our three heroes, I'm watching it and I'm thinking, this, this is me as a kid taking my action figures and having them fight uh, my little brother's stupid insect action figure, his insectars or whatever, making them roll around. Or me taking my action figures and throwing them into ant hills and be like, run, Luke, run. This, that scene was pure 100% prepubescent childlike glee for me. This scene is very reminiscent of another scene uh, from one of the other films <laughs> where a certain someone is uh, being, you know, sacrificed to certain creatures. <laughs> and it's something that we've done in almost every Star Wars movie. Star Wars, we had the Garbage Monster. Empire, we had the Wampa. Return of the Jedi, Rancor, of course. Phantom Menace, we had the Underwater Monsters. This one, we had the Accolade and then the two other monsters. I can't remember if Revenge of the Sith had a monster scene in it. And I'm actually going to be quite sad if it didn't, because Lucas liked hiding these little scary moments in his movies. Those are all scary moments, and all five of those scenes are meant to make us afraid for the heroes. More so than just, choo, 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 I'm a stormtrooper, I'm shooting at you. Like, these are monsters. And our heroes have to fight him down. The scene where they're this whole that whole bug fighting scene in the Genosian arena is is one of the best scenes of the of, of definitely of the prequel trilogy. Definitely of the prequel trilogy. Childlike glee watching that. And yes, uh, you know we just see how cool the Jedi's are at getting out of any situation. It just looks impossible. They're all tied up to these big huge blocks. There are these three beastly monsters. You know. One's like a big rhino, one's like a huge snappy lizard, and the other one's like a big praying mantis. And yeah, we just see this craziness unfold, where somehow they manage to go from being completely immobilized and tied to these giant concrete posts to being free and actually winning the fight against these huge monsters. It's crazy. The arena fight also didn't really do it for me either, for whatever reason. It just, again, the villains, Dooku doesn't get in there. So it's like, where is the thing to latch onto the real human story inside that arena? It's just kind of not there for me. Aside from the laughably ludicrous part of Padme jumping off the pillar onto that animal's back. I get that she's a lady and things downstairs are a little bit different, but jumping down from, I'm going to say 10, 12 feet completely spread Eagle right onto the bony ridge of an animal. It's going to mess you up. And she, it's hilarious how she lands on that thing and just like, all right, let's go. That is awful. And this again has character stuff. I feel like we get to know more about the characters by how they confront uh, this battle. You know, Padme's crafty and she picks her lock and uses tools and... And uh, all by herself, Padme, not one of the trained Jedis, is the first one to escape from being chained to those pole things. Like, I thought that was really awesome. Like, she looks way more capable than Anakin in that scene. And it's funny because Anakin was bragging earlier about how he's, like, surpassed Obi-Wan. And clearly, he has not even surpassed Padme. It's just, it, I, I like this fight scene. It's, it's a big CGI fest, but I like it. And then at the end of it, you get the Jedi showing up, and the battle droids show up, and the clones show up, and it just escalates so quickly into, like, it goes from this, like, execution into a galactic war so fast. And I kind of like that. I do feel like it's a little weird how easily the Jedi seem to step into the role of being generals in this army. But you know what? 
I don't care because it's cool and I love seeing the clones come in. I love seeing the fighting start. And ultimately this leads to Anakin and then Obi-Wan and then Yoda battling Dooku. And I like all of that too. Just, I like lightsaber fights. I like explosions. I like action. I like Star Wars. And this whole ending scene to me, it feels like a lot of Star Wars. Then all the Jedis turn up. <laughs> big, big Jedi fight. Um, I always find it surprising how easily some of the Jedi seem to fall down. I get that they're against overwhelming forces, but come on, <laughs> stand your ground. You, you don't have to get hit by a blaster. You must be better than that. And we get to see a lot of uh, Samuel Jackson flying around with his purple wand in his hand, just slapping people around with his hands and moving things. And, and we've also got the entire silliness of free CPO where he's accidentally managed to get his head put onto one of the robots and his body's got the head of one of the army robots and it's just craziness and it's just a bit where um, R2-D2 turns up to rescue him takes his head off drags it along the floor and C-3PO goes "Ooh, what a drag and then when he finally finds free CPO's body lying on the floor and puts the head next to it free CPO goes oh I'm quite beside myself just just awful awful my favorite background character is kit fisto um i don't really know much about him greenish guy he's a jedi he's got like tentacle hair looking stuff and uh his big scene is at the end of the movie when all the jedi show up he force pushes a bunch of battle droids one of which happens to be a battle droid with c-3po's head and they all fall over and he's just got this big grin on his face as C-3PO makes a joke. I don't know if he heard C-3PO's joke or he's just like really happy to be a part of something. He seems like a nice guy. The Battle of Genosis, if I'm even pronouncing that right, is um, a great scene. I actually was doing in a film class in college and I used that scene to talk about movement. How the, it, it is shot like Saving Private Ryan. It's very, very subtle, but that is all... It's all CGI. I mean, not all of it, but for the most part, it's all fake. But it is shot like a war correspondent. And it's funny because it actually sets the tone for how the Clone Wars cartoon was going to be handled. It, like it's a war propaganda show that people are watching. It is um, all basically shoulder, steady cam, moving through this battlefield... They'll show a ship, they'll do a quick zoom on the ship, get a better view of it, and then the camera will kind of pan away and we'll see something else. It's like they're on D-Day. George Lucas does not get enough credit for his little decisions like that. Oh, he gets blamed for the big stuff, like the sand, I don't like sand, and stilted dialogue and stuff like He gets blamed for the big stuff, but when he makes decisions like, let's shoot this battle this first battle of the clone wars like there is a cameraman with the 501st jumping out of this walker and moving the camera around and trying not to get shot while also recording all this stuff that's why that scene works so well there's dust in front of the camera people are moving in front of the camera the camera's moving itself but it's subtle and it works so well the first battle of the clone wars really comes alive because of those simple filmmaking tricks that make us feel like we are there. Vehicles in the final battle, they, some of them had some very weird designs, especially the one with like the, I guess, purple or pink missiles that came off of it. And they were like on these sort of long detached rods looking like, how does that thing not fall off? They almost seem impractical and that's why they stood out a lot more. So especially when you compare it to the Trade Federation army in episode one, which was just a lot of brown and like sort of simple canon stuff. Yeah. Now here, I'm going to be rather remiss if I didn't speak about Christopher Lee. The man is a legend. And I mentioned in the previous movie, once again, how Ray Park gave the character of Darth Maul some instant credibility right away from his physicality, the action that he brought to that character. 
Here Lee adds the instant cred again, but it's from his history as an actor. I mean, he was the best Dracula ever. He's Saruman. The casting alone of him gives you the impression that this character is going to be a different type of villain than Darth Maul. This one's going to be very devious. I think he's going to be every bit as dangerous as Maul, but clearly in a different way. The flip side of this, unfortunately, is that this character does come out of nowhere and is kind of ultimately meaningless. Maybe they should have been better served to exploring his character a little bit more. I know there's some speculation out there, maybe even confirmed in some expanded universe material, that he wasn't Sith. He was somewhere, uh, well, he was a fallen Jedi. Maybe he was a bit more of the gray Jedi and that he had his own good intentions in this and that maybe he was like truly being manipulated by the Sith and he was a victim of this to an extent as well. The fact that we don't get that is a little bit of a shame because I think that Christopher Lee is an interesting enough actor that he could have given it a bit more depth than just like the, ooh, he's scary, but I like that scary kind of a thing. Adding more depth to anybody, even in the Star Wars universe, I think is a fair hope that you get from characters. Count Dooku is awesome as a character. Christopher Lee is an amazing actor. It, it does something that the the original trilogy does, where it brings in one of the Hammer guys, you know, it brings in Peter Cushing. Okay, well, who's the Peter Cushing of this next generation? Okay, I guess there's for Lee. You know, I, I I really enjoyed the character of Count Dooku quite a bit. It's probably it's probably one of my favorite things from Attack of the Clones. And, uh, and I don't know, I just I just think that Chris Lee is incredibly charismatic in that movie. My favorite ship in this movie is Count Dooku's cool little solar sail ship thing. So I actually looked it up. I didn't know what the name of it was. It's called Count Dooku's Panworka 116 class interstellar sloop. And can you even imagine such a distinguished man like Count Dooku traveling in anything other than something as awesome as a sloop? Come on. The the poorly named Count Dooku, and that is a really dumb name, um, is actually a really interesting character. A fallen Jedi, a Jedi who quit. That you could be part of the Jedi Order and then quit. Like you're like, oh, I'm gonna go do something else now. Yes, I'm gonna go be a count somewhere. Um, and yet, what he was doing is he had his own machinations to ruling the galaxy himself. How did he fall in with Palpatine? How does that work with the rule of of two in? the Sith. Who is this guy? And played by Christopher Lee very, very interestingly and well. I think that he's a really fascinating character. It's a shame that his name sucks. Like, it, it is. Because if he were, you know, like Darth, what is it? Darth Tyrannus is his other name. That's a cool name. That's neat. That belies his innate coolness because he is super cool. So, I kind of really enjoy uh, uh, Dooku. So, finally we get the showdown between Count Doku, 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 Sudoku, Count Sudoku, and Yoda. And oh my god, as our first glimpse of Yoda as a fighting individual, water, water treat. <laughs> uh, yeah, considering he like limps in on top of his cane, just hobbles into the room slowly. And then. Zoom, mm, he's just like he's everywhere like a chipmunk it's amazing it's just so so cool it's everything we want yoda to be you know we know he's a jedi master we know he's old and frown but man when he needs to he can certainly certainly (laughs) just ah yeah hammer and tongs mate amazing he's doing the little force flips he's up in the air and he's like just going totally bonkers then when it's all said and done he goes back to like the shriveled old little creature we know and he <laughs> grabs his little cane and he just walks off <laughs> I loved seeing Yoda in action um, episode 1 didn't really we didn't see that so much he just was pretty boring but he really amped up the action level in this movie and in the next one as we will soon hear about but I like that. Definitely, when I think of this movie, that's what I think about, is that's the first time you got to see Yoda 
you know, use a lightsaber and bounce around and stuff. Which is something I'm way cooler with as a kid than I am, like, now that I'm older. Because it's like, oh, maybe Yoda shouldn't be fighting, but whatever, whatever. And it is a little silly. I have to admit it's a little silly. The actual jumping around part, I don't like that much. But the lead up to that, the 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 just the trash talking Yoda, you know, must to learn you still have. Like, that's great. I love that stuff. I love the samurai showdown aspect of it. One of the most memorable things about this film that have just like stuck with me forever, it's like embedded in my brain and it's never coming out, isn't actually the film itself. It's uh, one of the ads that was ran uh, for like the DVD coming out. So it's uh, it's featuring the fight between Yoda and Count Dooku. And it goes, who's the man? Yoda man. And that, that that's just, it's so cringe, but it's stuck with me forever. And I kind of love it. Dooku manages to get away from uh, his fight with Yoda uh, and reports back to Palpatine and tells him that, you know, war has begun. And Palpatine says, excellent. Everything is going to plan. That's one of the other cooler things that I think in, in general, the preludes, I really like. I really enjoy looking at it and realizing what the Emperor is doing and that George Lucas, one of the good things he's done is like, he, that's not real clear. You have to really pay attention and realize oh, he's doing this, so that happens, and this happens. And just if you're casually watching it, I'm sure you don't pick that up. There's this one musical cue as the film's wrapping up. We see um, we see Palpatine, like, with Count Dooku and some other folks, like, surrounding him, and he's just viewing the whole clone army. And then you hear this tune that sounds like... exactly like the game of thrones tune it only lasts for like a few seconds but it's 100 percent the game of thrones theme and it's kind of weird and then and then we see yoda talking to mace windu and he says begun this clone war has and it's, this is just cool it's cool because this is like episode one was building up the world and expanding the universe and then episode two i feel like is striving to be like hey, you know that stuff that they talked about back in the original trilogy? Well, here it is. Here's what the Clone Wars was. And then, honestly, my favorite thing of this is this leads into the Clone Wars TV show, which I think is absolutely fantastic. And so, you know, for, for all of that, I kind of like Clone or Attack of the Clones. I, I was surprised watching it this time. There's There are lulls. There are low points. The low points in this movie are probably lower than the low points in most other Star Wars movies. But... I like it still. I think there are there's good stuff in here. There's just more stuff than there needs to be. And that's maybe the biggest uh, mark against the Clone Wars, is I think that it could have used uh, another pass from an editor to really cut out some of the extra stuff. But I still like it. The writing in this film is quite questionable at times. <laughs> you have some terrible jokes that didn't really land. There were some great jokes that did land. But overall, this film was quite a good romp. Um, the first half an hour I found quite painful. Uh, but once you, because I felt like it was all just, you know, really forced plot development. But as you get into the film, it does become quite enjoyable. The whole backstory of the clones being built for the federation army and then the army deciding to use the clones at the end it's you kind of get the feeling that the jedi even though they keep talking about how clouded their vision is by the dark side you feel like come on guys this is so set up <laughs> you you shouldn't be using this clone army <laughs> you know you don't just happen to come across a clone army 10 years later that was ordered for you to use not knowing that it was there something suspicious is going on don't touch it <laughs> don't touch it <laughs> think guys think but yeah it was quite enjoyable uh, and towards the end it was really good and of course it all leads up to the third film which i really really love <laughs> not many people do <laughs> people criticize it a lot but i really like the third film so i will return In a world where Lord of the Rings never came out, I think Attack of the Clones could have came out and it wouldn't have been like as 
you know, hated as it was. And it still, I think, has like a positive like score on Rotten Tomatoes and things like that. So it's not as bad as people think it is, but it certainly is the weaker of the Star Wars movies. But after like, the Lord, when we were in Lord of the Rings mode and a not so great Star Wars movie comes out, it makes it stick out like a sore thumb. This movie gives you more bad stuff than episode one. And it gives you more good stuff. Unfortunately, in my opinion, the bad stuff outweighs the good stuff. And you don't have as much of the opening up of the universe. This is a continuing of the story that you had before. But to say that this is a movie to hate, I don't hate this movie. I'll pop on this movie from time to time as a lark. as a, uh, I'll kind of hate watch it a little bit, but I there are things in there I enjoy too. So Star Wars Episode Two: uh, Attack of the Clones. One movie, there's got to be a movie that's going to be your least favorite. That's any in anything in any collection. I even you know, and I love the Bare Naked Ladies, but there is an album of theirs that's my least favorite. I love Star Trek, but there is a show that's my something has to land on the bottom, and unfortunately, this does. Um, but it's still Star Wars to me, and I still love Star Wars. I love all Star Wars. It's, it doesn't completely crap the bed, and that's the thing. It's it's it, there are things in it that I really don't like, but ultimately, I think it succeeds at being Star Wars. Podcasters Assemble, probably, Season 2, The Rise of Podcast, is a production of the We Can Make This Work, Probably, Podcast Network. This episode edited and produced by Tyler. Find more of our shows at probablywork.com and learn how to contribute to future episodes of Podcasters Assembled, Probably, by looking us up on Twitter at Casters Assemble. Submissions are always open. Thank you to everyone who was able to contribute to this episode. Be sure to check the show notes for links to places where you can find them all online. Podcasters Assemble probably will return in Star Wars Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith. The dialogue in this movie, not my... Can you...